Welcome to Cultural Technologies Podcast. I'm Bernard Dionysus Gagan. Today is the 1st of February, 2012. The Oxford English Dictionary defines an object lesson as a lesson in which a pupil's examination of a material object forms the basis for instruction. Figuratively, it may also mean a striking practical example of a principle or an ideal. One of my favorite examples of an object lesson comes from Mark Twain, who in The Prince and the Pauper says of the London Bridge, quote, In the times of which we are writing, the bridge furnished object lessons in English history for its children, namely the livid and decaying heads of renowned men impaled upon iron spikes atop of its gateways. Today we're going to have a different type of object lesson. We'll be speaking with Graham Harmon. He's the Associate Provost for Research Administration, as well as a Professor of Philosophy at the American University of Cairo. He's the author of numerous books, most recently The Quadruple Object, and he's perhaps best known for coining the term object-oriented philosophy. Uh, Graham, thank you for being with us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so maybe we could just start really simply. What is object-oriented philosophy? Object-oriented philosophy is the notion that the objects in the world are not exhausted by their interactions, that there is some nucleus in the object that is never fully deployed in its relations. This uh, type of philosophy grew for me out of a special reading of Heidegger's tool analysis, as you know, but perhaps I should summarize it for your listeners. Heidegger was working as uh, the major disciple in the School of Phenomenology of Edmund Husserl, and Husserl, of course, is best known for his notion that philosophy describes things as they appear to us in consciousness, that all scientific theories about the real world outside of appearance should be bracketed, and that we are speaking about the intricacies of things as they appear. Now, Husserl deserves much praise that's not covered in that phrase, which I can talk about later perhaps, but he, it's definitely an idealistic philosophy. It's a philosophy that reduces things to, the, to its, their appearance for us, even though Husserlians may deny this. Now, Heidegger's great reversal of this, of course, was to point out that, for the most part, things are not appearing to us in consciousness. They are unconsciously relied upon, taken for granted, and this uh, is brought out in his famous tool analysis in Being in Time, which actually dates from eight years earlier in his lecture courses. But it was first published in Being in Time in 1927. This idea that as I sit here conscious of the table and the tape recorder and the interview with Bernard, uh, I'm relying the whole time on some more implicit background of equipment, such as the floor, the atmospheric oxygen, my bodily organs, um, the policing system in Berlin that keeps the city fairly safe so that I can walk around, walk from my hotel to here without being attacked, all these things that I'm relying upon implicitly as this encounter is underway are not things that appear in consciousness unless something goes wrong with them. So if the floor collapses, if uh, tear gas comes into the room and we cough and we can't breathe as easily anymore, if I have a heart failure of some sorts while this is going on, all of these things will draw our attention to something. This is Heidegger's doctrine of the broken tool. Now Heidegger's tool analysis has become very prominent even within analytic philosophy in recent years, thanks mostly to Dreyfus. Um, as I see it, the tool analysis is usually misread by philosophers. The way they read it is as a kind of primacy of praxis over theory, so that um, all theoretical comportment emerges from this dark background of practical use. It occurred to me very early on in my graduate school career that this could not work for the simple reason that just as things are deeper than any theory we make about them or anything we see about them perceptually, so too are things deeper than any practical use we make of them. So. 
in sitting in the chair, you don't use up the chair any more you do when, when looking at it. The chair is somehow more than our sitting in it, just as it's more than our looking at it or theorizing about it. So in a sense, theory and practice are both on the same level. They're both the same derivative level. There's a deeper level, which is the object itself. And then, of course, I push that a step further to a, a point that many people are still not willing to accept, which is that objects do this to each other as well. Objects are not conscious in the same way that we are. I'm not saying I'm a full-blown panpsychist. But when two objects simply collide, they are also not exhausting each other in the same way that we don't exhaust them when we interact with them. And so in a way, um, object-oriented philosophy is a, a theory about the difference not between praxis and theory, but between objects and relations. Mm-hmm. That an object enters into relations, an object is always more than its relations, and so some of that is withheld from the relations. Now this has obvious links with actor network theory, which has uh, a similar flavor in the sense of talking about multiple entities that enter into networks with each other. Uh, and it was fairly late that I encountered Latour. I was told to read Latour when I had... I was not quite done with my PhD yet, but I was already almost 30 years old, and I was already done with about a third of my dissertation. But it was still a tonic to read Latour because we, we did really click intellectually. I hadn't met him yet, but I, I really felt at home in his books. Where I would disagree is that Latour tends to reduce objects to their interactions with other objects. So, for example, in Pandora's Hope in 1999, he says an entity is no more than whatever it transforms, modifies, perturbs, or creates. Or as I'm saying, the reality of an entity is anything but what it transforms, modifies, perturbs, or creates. That's simply its outward effect on other things. I do not believe in internal relations. I do not believe that the relations a thing has affect its real internal constitution. A thing uh, is some dark nucleus that recedes from those interactions. And it's hard to find. That's why it's going to be hard to construct methods, object-oriented methods in the humanities. We'll talk about that later. But uh, you cannot begin by reducing a thing to its effects on other things. That is the central principle of object-oriented philosophy. Mm-hmm. So as long as you, as you mentioned um, Latour, so Latour is a well-known article, has critique run out of steam, mm-hmm. which he dedicates to you. And as I read the article, one of the questions in there is it's, you read it as this kind of crisis, potentially in Latour's work and in science studies, where Latour says... Contemporary critical theory has somehow reduced everything to these imaginary constructs. And in that essay, you see the beginning of a turn towards something like things, right? What's out there? What's real? What resists? So that we won't simply, you know, fall back on some notion of, say, discourse and socials making everything up, right? So in in Latour's turn towards things, there's a kind of ethical crisis, I think, at work. Is there, in your work, um, some sort of crisis that says philosophy needs to start talking about objects? All right. Uh, A bit of background on that article, Latour's article, Why Is Critique Run Out of Steam? The reason it's dedicated to me is because he wrote it in response to a question I asked. And that's an interesting story in its own right. I asked Latour why it was that in so many of his writings he seemed to be attacking scientific naturalism which simply seemed to be fueling the fire in the United States after the so-called hoax, where Latour is being treated as just another social constructionist, there's no reality outside the mind, which I knew was false, but was the common misconception in the United States that many people had of Latour. And so I asked him, why don't you write uh, a response from the opposite direction? Why not attack the social constructionist camp to show that you're not one of them either? Mm-hmm. His response was very illuminating. His response was that he, he was a bit puzzled. He said that in France, he gets the attack from the opposite direction. In France, he's, he's attacked by the Bourdieuians, who think that he's not giving society enough power, that he's a kind of reactionary realist who's letting nature do all this work, which is kind of funny. Um, mm-hmm. 
So he said, okay, uh, he took my advice uh, to heart and said, maybe I have something there, and maybe it's true in the United States, the situation is the opposite. So he wrote this article. I agree with virtually everything in that article. I say virtually only because I can't remember the whole article. Mm -hmm. It's been a number of years since I read it. Perhaps I agree with all of it. I also do not like critique. I do not like this uh, default assumption that the work of the intellectual means to debunk, to demythologize, to trash, to make us believe in less. Uh, for example, in, in the uh, work of my former speculative realist colleague, Ray Brassier, I think you see this kind of modernist scientism at work. I found this, this turn of Brassier to be rather disturbing and disappointing, I must frankly state, because I think it's, it's simply a, a too easily available intellectual option that's been there throughout the, the modern era, and it's, it's not challenging him enough to just pick up this Churchill stuff and this Sellers stuff and run with it like that. Uh, it seems to me that quite the opposite is true of science. Science does not primarily debunk and, demyth and demythologize and beat up Christians and alchemists and mm -hmm. tell them that they're too gullible. That's, that might be fringe work from the, for the policing. Epistemological police might do this kind of thing. But what science really does is, is multiply our gullibility beyond all known levels. Think about all the stuff that's on the web that you can find out about. Think of all the things we believe in now, all these strange undersea creatures that we'll never see, all the microbes we've discovered, all the, uh, the vast number of, of uh, celestial bodies that keep being discovered by the Hubble telescope, by radio telescopes. It seems to me that we are the, now the more gullible than any human society in the history of the Earth. We believe in more things than primitive religions do gods and spirits. Now, we may think we have better scientific evidence for it than they do, but the, the root fact remains that we believe in a lot more. And enlightenment consists in learning about more, believing in more, taking more things seriously. So I would say that modernity has been doing the opposite of what it says. It claims to have been a debunking move, primarily because it was preoccupied with beating up the church and freeing the conscience from that kind of policing. But really what it's been doing is increasing our explosiveness, our gullibility about various things in the world. Um, you, asked, you asked another question. It was about, is there a crisis motivating my... Yeah, is there... So, is there some kind of... Um, either in the world or in, their, in philosophy, is there some ethical move that says it's important that we, that we turn to objects... Now, is there something say that that made you, that for you said this is the turn that needs to happen now? For me, it came out of a reading of, of Heidegger, uh, but I think societally there may be such a, a crisis underway. J. G. Ballard actually put this in a very interesting way in his wonderful interviews and in, in research. Mm -hmm. um, he said that the role of the imaginative writer has flipped in our time. Previously, the imaginative writer was supposed to produce fictions. Yeah. However, we're now completely surrounded by fictions. We're surrounded by advertisements, by artificial environments. The role of the author now is to create realities, he said, or to discover realities, perhaps. But uh, that, that remark always struck the right note with me. Mm -hmm. And I thought perhaps it's time for philosophy to do the same. That philosophy is so filled with fictions, with language, with power, with uh, socially constructed networks, that perhaps the time is ripe to look at what escapes those networks. Mm -hmm. So... So then, to take um, so I to take a, a well-known reference, someone like Michel Foucault, mm -hmm. uh, who you know, among other things, he introduced the whole problem of knowledge and power and discourse into contemporary humanistic discourse in in, in, mm -hmm. in, uh, in a new way. And he said a great aspect of the way in which we know things depends number one on discursive structures, and also depends number two on power relations mm -hmm. that are making these objects known to us, available, available to us, um, and so on. So would an object-oriented philosophy say 
Well, actually, all of those questions are kind of irrelevant, extrinsic, debunking, and we need to forget about power, and we need to forget about language, and we just need to look at the, the objects in themselves somehow. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure we need to forget those things. Um, let me say something about Foucault. I'm sorry to say that I've never been a great fan of Foucault. I've, I've tried. I, I really admire his interviews. He seems to me like a very powerful mind in those interviews, always surprising, alert, adroit, agile. And when I read the books, I'm d- d- disappointed. Let's see if I can explain why. Insofar as he's an archivist, I get a lot more out of reading plain old simple historians. I'd rather read Bordel or Gibbon than read Foucault talk about penal techniques in 18th century France. I always gain a lot more information from those flat-out historians. Insofar as he's a philosopher, he's what we call a correlationist in speculative realism. Mansu agrees with me about this. Um, Correlationism is the the term coined by Mansu in 2006 to mean the kind of philosophy that isn't quite idealist all the way and doesn't really take a position on the idealism-realism disputes, but says that we can't really know anything outside the human world correlates. We can't think the world without the humans or humans without the world. And that's considered to be this progressive position. Phenomenology also upholds this position. It ends up being a form of idealism because you end up talking only about things that exist for humans. This is how I see Foucault's supposed materialism. When they talk about his materialism, all it really is is it's a historicism of the human subject. It's about the way the human subject has been produced by disciplinary practices over time. Foucault can't tell us anything about the sun or about the way that two billiard balls collide. And I know that's not his goal, but the fact is there's no way within his philosophy to account for that. It's all about the human world relationship and the supposed materiality is really not a materiality at all. It's a it's kind of a residue and a mm-hmm. kind of historicism that shapes the subject. I don't think we need to forget about his political insights. They may still be there because moving ontologically to a kind of flat ontology, um, I'm, I'm, my ontology is not totally flat, but I'll, I'll use that term loosely, a kind of ontology where humans and inanimate objects and animals are all on the same footing does not necessarily imply that all those things are political. It does not necessarily imply that we have nothing to learn from previous teachings about human politics. There are only certain entities that engage in political associations. It may be true that we need to take inanimate entities more into account as parts of the polis. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that tsunamis and, and clouds are political in the same way that humans are. Of course not. So it may be that, that many of these insights uh, about politics that come from correlationist authors are still of use for politics. I don't expect to throw all that out. I don't expect to throw out what Hegel says and Marx says and Foucault says. There, there are valuable lessons there. Mm-hmm. So... One of your claims in um, the quadruple object is that uh, an object-oriented approach could have as revolutionary an importance for um, for the humanities as Freudian psychoanalysis did. Um, I'm not saying we're there yet. I'm saying that that would be a goal. That that's the kind of thing you want to try yeah. to do is yeah. be able to have impact in many different fields. Mm-hmm. So if you look at so psychoanalysis, at the heart of it, there are all these questions about. Humans, right? So right. about human sexual drive, mm-hmm. about repression, and there's also a whole set of strategies of reading, which even if they start from dreams, can gradually be folded uh, or extended out into a wider and wider section of the world and the way humans engage with the world. Mm-hmm. Of course, object-oriented philosophy is very different, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's not inscribing a set of human problems at the center of ontology or interpretation. So what would an object-oriented uh, approach to the humanities look like? It's still in the process of development, but I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Freud. Freud is one of my heroes for a couple of reasons. I don't agree with everything he says, of course. 
one of the reasons he's one of my heroes is he's a fabulous writer, and that is un of underrated importance when we're talking about intellectuals. I think when in doubt, write well, is what I would mm -hmm. say. Because what you do when you're writing is you are struggling to grasp things that are not easily formulatable as, formulable as uh, explicit propositions. There's this kind of lazy approach to intellectualism where you think the important thing is to be clear. And fuzzy people are bad and vague people are bad. You're trying to make everything as clear as possible. Analytic philosophy has tried to teach us this. Continentals are also fuzzy and we need to make clear propositions in advance like the sciences do. This is completely false as I see it. Uh, clarity does not get us truth. Clarity gets us a kind of superficial crust that looks like a truth. Because reality itself is not an explicit proposition. Reality itself is something deeper than what we say about it. And so therefore the only way to get at reality is to be able to allude, to hint, to suggest. And this is ridiculed by the scientific crowd, but who cares? They're, they're simply following this kind of dogmatic robotic method of the natural sciences, which is not applicable to philosophy. We're not, we're not trying to make clear catalogs of all the known properties of things in philosophy the way they try to do in the natural sciences. I don't even think the sciences only do that, but that's a, a stickier topic. What you're trying to do in philosophy is find what's lying beneath the crust of the world. You, you love wisdom. You don't have it. It's philosophia. It's not sophia. You're trying to get at what's hiding beneath opinion, what's hiding beneath appearance. And the only way to do that is by approaching it obliquely, the way Socrates did, the way Heidegger does in his Doctrine of Truth. Um, so I, was, I said all this because Freud is a great writer. And what, to me, a great writer is someone who knows that reality is something a bit deeper than explicit propositions, and so they're able to use a certain suggestive power. They're able to use metaphors. They're able to use inspiring rhetoric while also building up a solid case for what they're talking about. I think it's, it's very rare that there is someone who is a truly good writer who has garbage theories. I think if someone's writing well, it's a sign that they're onto something, and you have to take that seriously. I will... That's a very important principle for me. So when in doubt, write well means that if you, if you can write something well, you're getting close to what it's all about. Now, uh, so that's one thing I like about Freud. The other thing I like about him is he started with one very simple insight and found that it was extremely applicable to so many different areas. That insight, of course, was the notion that a dream is a wish fulfillment, which he then turned into a theory of human culture in general. That Many different things turn out to be wish fulfillments or censorings or, or other, other such Freudian uh, concepts. And this is what we would like to do in object-oriented philosophy as well. And my use of the, the we here is not the royal we. There is actually a group working on object-oriented approaches to different things. We also have one simple insight at the basis of our theories, which is that the object withdraws from its relations. The object is something deeper, um, both in its outward effects and also something not identical with its component pieces. Mm -hmm. This might be a good time to talk about overmining and undermining. I oppose overmining and undermining as basic philosophical methods. My contention is that until now, all philosophies have tended either to undermine or to overmine, and they, in the end they collapse into the same thing. Undermining philosophies are the first one. The first ones in the history of Western philosophy in ancient Greece, the pre-Socratics. What were all the pre-Socratics trying to do? They were trying to say that everyday objects are a sham, that you're looking for what is, what is the more real layer of reality that from which everyday objects are built up. Mm -hmm. And so in the case of Thales, generally considered the first Western philosopher and also the first Western scientist, the first principle of everything is water. You have uh, Anaximenes, for whom it's air, that uh, condensed air becomes rocks and bones and rarefied air becomes fire. You have Empedocles, who decided that it can't be any one particular element, um, but it must be four elements, air, earth, water, and fire, mixed by love and hate. You have the atomists, saying that everything's made of atoms. So these, these are the various forms of um, 
undermining philosophy and pre-Socratic philosophy. And of course, of those, atomism has triumphed. Atomism is kind of the, I like to acerbically call it the folk ontology of our time, because these scientific philosophers like to call everything folk this or folk that. You know, mm-hmm. This is your folk psychology, your folk whatever. No, I, I think uh, materialism is a folk metaphysics. It's simply the one pre-Socratic theory that has triumphed and since the uh, modern physics has led to so many practical triumphs, people assume the metaphysics underlying it is true, even though it can't. It has obvious limitations. It can't even unify quantum theory and relativity yet within its own boundaries. Beyond that, it can't tell us anything about literature except by reducing it to implausible underpinnings. You get Darwinistic readings of literature saying that the, the Iliad is about natural selection or that Jane Austen is about why older, powerful men like to wear, marry beautiful younger women. It, it reduces literature to a content that's telling scientific truths. Mm-hmm. So, no, that, that will not work. That kind of reductionism will not work. There's another form of undermining in pre-Socratic philosophy, however, which is the aperon theory, the idea that uh, there's a single indeterminate indefinite lump from which everything emerges. You get that first in Anaximander. The difference between these theorists, I talk about this in the book, is that some of them uh, think the aperon exists now, some think it existed in the past, and some think it will exist in the future. Uh, Parmenides is the one who thinks it exists now. All that exists now is being. The many diverse beings are illusions of the senses, of opinion. And if you use reason, you'll discover that everything is one. Everything is being. So the opera exists now. We simply cannot see it. As for in the past, you have um, two philosophers, Pythagoras, who thinks that there was an opera of this indeterminate lump, not, not broken up into individual things. Um, it inhaled the void. And by inhaling the void, I suppose this created bubbles in the opera and it shattered the world into these specific pieces, these specific objects, and that's how individual things were created. You also have Anaxagoras, who thinks that this all-powerful mind, or noose, began to think, and this caused the world to rotate so quickly that it broke into pieces. And you have, everything is impregnated with pieces of everything else. So in my, in my arm are tiny little trees and sharks and fires. The reason I look like me instead is because there are more pieces of me dominating those other pieces. So, uh, and then you have also the one philosopher who thinks the operon will exist in the future, very importantly, that's Anaximander, who thinks that time and justice will destroy all opposites. Hot and cold will meet in some middle ground eventually millions of years in the future good and evil, and whatever opposites you can think of will annihilate each other. The influence here on Karl Marx is obvious, and Marx uh, wrote his thesis, of course, uh, on the early Greek philosophers, not too far from where we're sitting now, I believe. Mm. Um, so that's undermining. That, that's undermining. Now, I also coined... The, that, that's typical of most pre-modern philosophies. That's what they and just, do. And so just to, 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 to put it in a really nutshell, basically undermining is the, the a predominant strategy in aspects of philosophy and the natural sciences that yep. reduces whatever whatever we see it reduces it to smaller elements that are more real somehow that yes. are more essential yes okay and you can fight that principle by simply pointing to cases of emergence that there are things that have properties that are not found in their component properties mm-hmm. now scientific philosophy tries to avoid this in a number of ways first of all by claiming that that is a mystical assertion that oh you can't explain it I'm not saying you can't scientifically explain it. You can explain using quantum theory why certain chemicals have certain properties mm-hmm. that, that the atoms didn't have. That's not the point. The point isn't whether or not you can scientifically explain it. The point is whether or not the compound reality is a reality that is different over and above its pieces. And scientific philosophy in its most extreme forms tends to say no, that anything higher than the microparticles or than the mathematical structures at bottom is simply projected by humans. You know, We call something gold because it happens to have gold uses that mm-hmm. are good for us. So you and these, well, I'll get to that in a second because there's a way in which undermining and overmining meets in the end. <coughs> but yes, what you said about undermining is correct. Uh, then you also get what I call overmining philosophies, coining a term. 
that really works well only in English and a couple of other languages, taking the prefix under and reversing it. What you're doing there is saying, whereas, whereas undermining says that objects are too shallow and there's something deeper that's real, mm-hmm. overmining says objects are too falsely deep. Why would you posit these mystical objects lying behind appearances? So you find this in all kinds of philosophers. You find this in any idealists, you know, Barclay. You find this in Nietzsche, who thinks it's naive to posit realities behind appearances and forces. You find this in, uh, say, Whitehead, who turns things into their the apprehensions, their relations to other things. I, I claim you find it in Latour, who is, for the record, my favorite living philosopher. So any disagreements I have with Latour are a family quarrel with a, a good friend. Maybe a, maybe a big family quarrel, but uh, still someone I admire a great deal and always have. Uh, all of these are overmining philosophies. So you have those two opposite. Those two opposites. Both of them are attacking the in-between things. Both of them earn their living by ridiculing and mocking the in-between level of the world's mid-sized objects, independent mm-hmm. horses and trees and and even molecules and things like this. And what both schools ridicule. Now, what I noticed only slowly is that in the end, these two schools are parasitical off of each other. The overmining and undermining. They always flip into each other. So, for example, the undermining theories, which tend to be scientific uh, in our time mostly, once you undermine all the way and get down to these smallest particles, what you find is that these smallest particles aren't really unified objects. They're simply lists of qualities bundled together. They're, they're identical with what could be known by an adequately educated scientific observer about them. There isn't anything in gold over and above what we can know about it. You see this, for example, in Kripke's philosophy, where the hidden secret essence of gold turns out to be its number of protons, which is extremely disappointing. Um, so in that sense, undermining flips into overmining. There's also a sense in which overmining flips into undermining. And I'm afraid my good friend Latour is an example of this. Mm-hmm. Because after spending his entire career talking about how things are nothing more than their effects on networks, in a couple of recent books, he's posited this mystical underlying thing called the plasma from which all change emerges. I think he did this because he started to sense that it doesn't work to define things totally in terms of their associations and networks, that nothing can change. That's the problem with the philosophy of relations. If things are nothing more than their relations here and now, why would they ever move into new relations? There's no surplus in the thing beyond what it is now. If I were nothing more than my exact position in Berlin right now, how could I ever go back to Cairo? There wouldn't be anything in me over and above what I am in Berlin. So obviously there's something in me that can move, that can change, that is not completely exhausted in exhausted by or deployed in its current predicament in the worlds. And what I think happens a lot of times in these philosophies that deal with the surface is they have to posit some underlying principle of change to explain how things do change. And that's what Latour does with the plasma. Latour goes so far as to say that the networks, which were the topic of his entire philosophy before now, are simply the size of the London undergrounds, while the plasma is the size of the rest of London. So it's this giant mass. It's also not carved into parts for him. It's a single plasma that's causing disruptions everywhere, which I find implausible. Uh, he says, how can empires collapse overnight? How can a suddenly mediocre musician write brilliant symphonies all of a sudden? How can mm-hmm. this person do something you didn't expect? Um, it's because of this plasma. There's something there that creates surprising upsurges and things. I don't think it's plausible to have one plasma shared by everything. That sounds too much like the Deleuzian virtual, which Latour usually isn't too sympathetic to, but here he becomes sympathetic to it. I know Deleuzians claim that the virtual is in one and that that's a fantasy propagated by uh, Alain Badiou, but I don't see it that way at all. I think Badiou's correct on that point. That Deleuze is essentially a monist. He's coming out of Spinoza, after all. And, of course, people try to claim that Spinoza isn't really a monist either, but I, it's, it's hard to claim. I think we've had too much Spinoza and not enough Leibniz, not enough plurality in recent philosophy. Too much Spinoza fashion, and I'm afraid too much Deleuze fashion recently, but perhaps that's a topic for later. Mm-hmm. So maybe just stick to the, just stick to the Latour for a second. Mm-hmm. 
So we were talking a little bit before we started uh, recording today. And I asked the question if, so one of the things you say over, over and over again in Quadruple Object is you're concerned about philosophies that exhaust their objects. Mm-hmm. Um, and you cite, you cite Latour's work as, as an example of that. And I said, well, you know, he has this, Latour has, for example, in uh, Pandora's Object, this Pandora's claim, hope. or Pandora's Hope, right. Pandora's Hope, excuse mm-hmm. me, I've got object-oriented yes. on the brain now. Um, so he's trying to mock people that says, uh, mock people who say objects have no uh, agency of their own. Right. And he uses the whole, um, do guns kill people or do people kill people? Right. And he says, in some sense, it's naive to say, well, it's only people doing it because we know that when the gun enters the equation, that the agency and the what, you know, what happens somehow changes. And, and what I see in that partially is not just a, a network account of the human and the gun, but also some assertion that this, this gun must have its own properties, must have something peculiar to it that allows it to affect this relation in a different way, right? Put in another term, I don't necessarily see this as a way of exhausting the object, but saying, okay, objects, they have qualities, but the way we come to know those qualities are through their networks. Um, am I misreading Latour? No, I think it's a good reading, and I like that passage a lot. Yeah. I tend to agree with that passage completely when I read it. And it's, I'm glad you bring this up, because this is one of the misunderstandings people sometimes have of object-oriented philosophy. They think that we are taking the guns don't kill people, people do line on that example, because they seem to think I'm saying that guns have their own independent reality and people have their own independent reality and their interaction does not affect anything, which is not what I'm saying at all. What I say under my model is that when the gun and the person come together, they create a new object. It's the armed person. That's a new object from either the gun or the person. And that new object is dangerous in a way that the other two themselves are not. Mm-hmm. And so I think Latour and I largely agree on that point. Um, yes. And so, so if... Okay, I'm wondering, you're uh, opposing purely relational philosophies. Um, but when we look at this example of the gun, right? The gun is one thing, the... the the would-be shooter is another thing, but together they become a new object, right? So, which some people would say, well, that's, that's, that's another version of relationism, but you're collapsing the relations into objects. So the question is, what is it that delineates an object, gives it its autonomous reality, if they can so readily collapse into larger objects? They don't do it so readily. They don't all combine. You can't combine a gun with a sparrow or a gun with a tree. Not much is going to happen. So it's only certain objects that can combine. And of course, even in the case of humans, you have to teach somebody how to use a gun. Mm-hmm. So it's not automatic that they know how to use it. A small child, for example, can use it extremely irresponsibly, yeah. simply by not knowing what it is. What makes an object an object? The fact that... Let's look back at the first example of object-oriented philosophy in the history of Western philosophy, an earlier version, Aristotle's theory of substance, which I, to which I probably acknowledge a debt. So there are problems with that theory and its successors. But what Aristotle points out is that a substance, unlike a property, is something that can have different properties at different times. So green is always green and sad is always sad. But Socrates can be happy one minute and sad the next. That's precisely what makes him Socrates, is that he's not identical with any of his properties. Properties can change within certain limits. So that's one thing that makes a, uh, an object real, the fact that it cannot be undermined. And this is, this is one of the keys to developing a, human, a method in the humanities, an object-oriented method is trying to find things that cannot be undermined or overmined. You're discovering objects. When you discover objects, what you're doing is looking for things that cannot be undermined or overmined. If you cannot reduce something 
to a series of specific occurrences, then you cannot overmine it. If you're looking at literary criticism, what makes a powerful character in literature? It's, it's a character that takes on a life of its own, that is not simply tied to specific events in a second-rate novel, but it's, it's a character you can imagine getting up and walking around the room and entering new situations. Very vivid character. We've known this all, all along in criticism. This is what makes a good, a good portrayer of character. Um, so that would be an example of finding a real literary object, something that, or, or the example of great writers or great musicians, a style, a style that is not reducible to a, a specific corpus of works. Even in rock music, you see this. You, you might remember a one-hit wonder band. You associate them specifically with one song, whereas if you're thinking of the Beatles or some more classic rock band, you're thinking of this entire corpus in which a Beatles style is exemplifying itself in numerous ways. You're finding a, you're trying to get at something there that's that's real, that is not exhausted by its specific manifestations. Mm-hmm. Proper names. Uh, in Kripke's theory, my favorite philosophy, uh, aspect of this philosophy is the fact that a proper name is pointing at an individual who is deeper than any other qualities. The person can change their shirt, change their name, change their context. You're still calling out to a real person who remains the same when you call out their name. Um, so you, you have to look for things that cannot be uh, overmined. You also have to look for things that cannot be undermined. If something can be broken down into smaller parts, it's also not a real object. Now, I should also have added that I'm not opposed to undermining and overmining in all cases. I'm not saying that we can't call anything unreal, that we can't reduce anything. Obviously, we can. For example, you can undermine when you say that the morning star and the evening star are actually the same body, Venus. They just take, it takes on two separate appearances. In fact, my philosophy is reductive in the sense that I'm saying that there's a, a tool being beneath all the individual manifestations. I'm reducing all those manifestations to an underlying thing. So there are times when reduction is important. Mm-hmm. What I'm against when I'm against undermining is the idea that this is the sole mission of philosophy and that there are no mid-sized objects at all, that they all must be reduced. I'm saying that makes it too easy, that there have to be methods developed uh, for identifying which of the mid-sized objects are real and which are just figments of the imagination. You shouldn't be in such a hurry to smash them all as scientific philosophy is. Um, and what was, what we were talking about, that was the undermining methods, there's also the overmining methods. Um, there are also times when overmining methods are appropriate. So, for example, if, if uh, someone claims that there are witches and unicorns and goblins, it's right to overmine those and say that those are socially constructed. There aren't really witches, that this woman is innocent, she shouldn't be burned alive, because all you're seeing are specific manifestations and you're falsely linking them together in some imaginary witch essence. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying you can never undermine or overmine. This is another misunderstanding of object-oriented philosophy. Um, I noticed some, there was a Wikipedia article about me, and I noticed for many months it said, Harmon believes that all objects are equally real. And I'm, I'm sitting there, you, you're not supposed to change your own article, so I had to sit there with this oh, yeah. gross error there for months. <laughs> I do not believe everything is equally real. I believe everything is equally an object. Some are real, some are absolutely not real. The, the uh, real ones are the objects that withdraw, that have reality, even when we're not looking at them, uh-huh. because uh, when they can affect other things, and even when they're not affecting other things, they have a certain reality. Um, so, yes... I, it's not true that I think all objects are equally real. There are, I, I distinguish between two kinds of objects. The real objects, which exist outside of me, the sensual objects, which do not. Mm-hmm. Sensual objects exist only for me or for other observers. And this is what I think Husserl's intentional objects are. Mm-hmm. Intentional objects are the ones that exist only for an observer. Husserl calls that a kind of realism because he thinks that's the most realism you're ever going to get, that you can't talk about anything outside of potential observing consciousness. I say that's flat-out idealism, that mm-hmm. it's something, an object that exists only for an observer is not a real object at all. Mm-hmm. And so just to, to keep on pushing with this um, undermining, overmining thing. Um, so there's one reading, so you have this the strong critique of uh, British sensationalism, British empiricism mm-hmm. for constantly reducing, 
objects to sensations to bundles of qualities mm-hmm. um, and it seems like one of the one of the goals of one of the goals of that that style of approach is producing um, certain forms of knowledge knowledge that has a cert- a certainty to it right mm-hmm. and once we can agree on that the certainty of that knowledge that itself provides a kind of basis for producing social and political order mm-hmm. right um, and so in that sense you know one of the one of the one of the basic purposes i think of undermining and overmining is uh, and to pick a completely different example actually a totally different example if you also if you look at a lot of uh, a lot of marxist criticism right, right where it's interested whether you're talking about bases and superstructures you know whatever it sort of loses in the immediate quality of the world there's still an intervention there that says you know, we're caught in some type of system. We need to come up with a strategy for designating it so that we can intervene within this world and collectively make some kind of change, mm-hmm. right? And so the question would be, um, does, uh, I mean, does, does how would you, how would you put it? Uh, does an object-oriented does an object-oriented approach have anything anything to offer in the ways of producing new types of social or political order? Um, is it uh, you know it's one thing to it's one thing to critique these methods, but you could also say, well, look at what look at what British empiricism gave us in terms of being able to intervene in the world and know in the world, and we might have lost something, but we gained something. Similarly, in terms of a Marxist criticism. Uh, whatever it surrenders from the the immediate concrete world, it also gives us a way to intervene, right? Can that be used to sort of justify these philosophies? Or alternately, does object-oriented philosophy give us something new in terms of placing ourselves in the world, organizing ourselves together? All good questions. I've written down four of them so I can try to hit on a couple of the points you mentioned. First of all, you asked about knowledge and social order. I would begin by saying that building social order on knowledge is a very bad idea for the simple reason that knowledge does not exist. It's not the sophists who said that, remember, it's Socrates who said that. If, if virtue were knowledge, it would be teachable, it ends up not being teachable. Knowledge does not exist, only God has knowledge. Humans are at best lovers of wisdom, and social order needs to take that into account. If you ignore that, you end up with ideology, you end up with mass slaughter in the name of some attempt to reinvent the world in the image mm-hmm. of an idea, which is a very bad idea. An attempt to make the world knowable, to make the social world knowable, will lead to disaster quite often that way. Um, you say we're caught up in a system. Well, in a sense, object-oriented philosophy is the best possible philosophy for breaking out of that, because the whole philosophy is about how things are not caught up in systems. I often am surprised when people of a leftist persuasion uh, try to convince me that relational ontology is the only way to liberate because otherwise you fall into what Marx called commodity fetishism, thinking that the value is in the commodity rather than in its conditions of production. I got this critique from my friend Peter Hallward, for instance, who's very much of the left. But as I see it, if things are relational, they lose their capacity for disruptive or transformative change. The reason there can be change, the reason there can be revolution at all, or any kind of even reform, is because a thing is not totally inscribed in its current conditions. You're if a certain class that's oppressed or a certain nation's oppressed calls out for to be recognized, taken seriously, it's because it's not currently recognized by the system. I think I agree with Badiou on this to some extent. There, there are ways I totally disagree with Badiou about this too. Uh, I end up with a very different politics probably in the end and 
uh, eventually. And, and um, I also don't agree that what comes before the count is this inconsistent multiplicity. But otherwise, I agree with Badiou that events involve an eruption mm-hmm. from, from what is not currently recognized by the current state of things. You asked then, what does object-oriented philosophy offer for social political philosophy? All right, this is a fascinating question I'm often asked. My first response is, what's the hurry? Mm-hmm. Uh, there are three problems that I have with the rush to ask me what my philosophy does for politics. Number one, it implies that only practical benefit gives any value to philosophy. It implies a hostility to knowledge for knowledge's sake. Knowledge's sake. I'm not saying that all knowledge should be only knowledge for knowledge's sake, but there is a place for that. There is a place for saying that Brentano may have a point that the great eras in the history of philosophy have not been contaminated by practical considerations, but have been purely theoretical eras. There may be something to that. Our era currently in philosophy is very politicized. I'm not sure we need any more of that. Um, that's my first problem with it. My second problem with it, it took me quite a while to figure out, but I think I finally figured out that people who so insist on politics being the foundation of philosophy are simply trying to keep Kant's Copernican revolution going in a different form. The, the condition of all access to the world must be political engagements rather than language or rather than perception, as in, in analytic philosophy or phenomenology, it becomes politics. Politics mm-hmm. is our, we, we can't encounter the world outside of political presuppositions, this kind of thing. And of course, I'm totally opposed to that. Um, the third objection I have to it is I see the role of the philosopher as being to create novel alternatives mm-hmm. to existing intellectual trench wars. You want to be able to offer something fresh and new. The philosopher should not be creating a system. The idea of a system is this idea that the philosopher is, is the answers person and just goes with a big cookie cutter onto this shapeless world and stamps the cutter in the world and gives an answer to everything. That whoever comes up to me with any question, I should be able to answer it or I'm not a real philosopher. I disagree with that completely. Philosophy is not a system. Philosophy is an infrastructure, and infrastructure is likely to be the title of my big book that I'm about to start, big systematic book. Um, when you think about an infrastructure, let's say you're building a light rail system for a city. Mm-hmm. You're not creating a giant gridwork made of squares to fit over the whole city. It'd be too expensive and it would be a waste of effort in many ways. What you're doing is looking for the places people want to go. You're looking for the population centers in the city, the commercial centers, and you're linking them by maybe three or four stops at first, then you're expanding it gradually. You're building new lines, crisscrossing that, and transfer points. And then over time, you're probably covering most of the parts of the city that need to be covered, although it's never finished. You know, there are budgetary limitations. There are limitations of interest and intensity. But over time, you're building this rail network. And this is how I see philosophy. What I'm looking for are things that surprise me. I'm looking for paradoxes, things that puzzle me. Um, and most of those things, for me, currently, personally, involve ontology, involve metaphysics. Mm-hmm. And I try to build outward. Um, I get more and more requests to write about things like literary criticism, art criticism. And when that happens, I try to rise to the challenge each time. And I work really hard to try to apply my ideas to that context, do some background studying. But I can't do it all at once. Mm-hmm. And I'm not that old yet, so I've not had all this time yet to fully develop this theory. So there needs to be a bit of patience. Now, as for politics, here's my objection. And some people aren't going to like this. But when people in philosophy, continental philosophy at least, ask you, what's your politics? What they really mean there beneath the surface is which form of existing leftism are you prepared to flatter? Mm-hmm. The only socially acceptable forms of politics in our circles, let's face it, are, are leftist uh, political philosophies. And um, all right, fair enough. Leftism is, is a lot better than rightism, as we know it. Um, and so it's, it's often going to be on the right side. But let's remember, first of all, that leftism, as we know it, grew up in the same era as idealist philosophy. And so it probably dips from some of those same presuppositions that I disagree with in philosophy. Mm-hmm. And so I want to be very cautious about jumping on board. I'd rather be ad hoc and deal with political issues that I care about. This is why I, I suddenly 
started posting a lot about the Egyptian revolution. Mm-hmm. Even though my blog seemed maybe a bit apolitical before that. Well, it's because I'm in Egypt. I care a lot about that situation. I maybe don't have a fully formed political philosophy about that, but I, I'm learning from the events as they unfold. And that's important to do. So those are some of the reasons I don't... Some people want to start with the politics. For me, that's a finishing point. That's something you try to get to eventually once you've figured out mm-hmm. where is the reality of the politics erupting for you in a way that you can grapple with. I don't just want to seize on some existing political philosophy because then I'd just be another ideologue. I'd just be another boring post-Marxist kind of a philosopher. Who wants that? Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't need me. And again, what's the rush? You're right to say that British empiricism had a political effect. Rousseau had a political effect. Marx had a political effect. But not immediately, right, in most cases. Mm-hmm. You have to think in terms of the long view. It takes a long time to translate an ontology into immediately politically useful terms. This has always been the case. It's not like philosophers are, you know, some people try to do this. The, the, the model of the French engaged intellectual who goes down with the bullhorn and intervenes in a strike or in a prison uh, policies. But it's not the case that I'm going to go down to Washington and change things with object-oriented philosophy. It's absurd. You know, I, that's not the kind of impact I would ever expect to have. Um, I'm not going to save the world. Philosophy is not going to save the world. Uh, this idea, I think, and this is actually Ray Brassier's idea, something I agree with him that he told me years ago, that this is a kind of hangover from Christianity in a way, that philosophy is immoral if it can't save the world. Mm-hmm. Unless it can liberate the masses and yeah. make the immigrants be treated better in France, and it's somehow not a real philosophy. I don't agree with that. Philosophy is a specific uh, theoretical enterprise that has its own value within certain limits, and it tries to expand outward from those limits. And that's what I try to do. I try to cover a wider and wider circle of human affairs all the time. I think each of my lectures, uh, you'll find that I'm always, almost always covering Heidegger's tool analysis, but it's becoming more and more compact. I get it down to a couple of paragraphs now, and then I'm moving on to more concrete topics. Uh, that's the way you have to do it. Mm-hmm. You have to build outward from what you know. Otherwise, you're simply going to be repeating platitudes that you read in somebody else's books, and I have no interest in doing that. Mm-hmm. So instead of, maybe there's a way to flip the question over. Um, instead of saying, uh, what's the philosophical or ethical you know, precondition that's guiding and motivating your work, um, maybe we could take what I think would be a, an object-oriented approach, which is to take a political event that course we're very close to the Egyptian revolution yes and say is there something either about the revolution itself mm-hmm. or a particular phenomenon internal to it for example Tahrir Square that from an object oriented uh, approach we would look at differently or understand differently yes they asked me this at Goldsmiths last week as well and I wasn't sure I had a good answer then and I probably don't know I, I can talk about what some of the things that fascinate me the most about it mm-hmm Sure. First of all, we didn't see this coming, at least I didn't. There have been building protests over the last few years, which I, I didn't think were going to lead to anything. I thought these were the work of, of professional activists who were taking a very long view indeed. Mm-hmm. I thought that the crisis was going to come when Hosni Mubarak died and he attempted to install, they intended to install his son as his successor, which was the most offensive thing that was going on over the past decade. It seems to have led to a lot of the extra corruption in the system. Um, so that's, this took me by surprise. The first sign I, I saw that unrest was increasing was the previous summer, the summer of 2010 in June, when the blogger Khaled Saeed was, was murdered in Alexandria, which was a really shocking event. This was the young man, about 28 years old, who uh, had somehow gotten footage of police in Alexandria divvying up the cocaine from a drug bust. I don't know who would film themselves doing mm-hmm. this. It didn't seem like a hidden camera. It looked like they were filming it for yeah. record-keeping purposes. Idiotic. 
Somehow, uh, Khaled Saeed got a hold of this footage and was trying to post it on a blog. The police found out that he was doing this somehow, came into the cyber cafe where he was working, slammed his head against the table, at which point the the cyber cafe owner asked him to please take it outside. They took him outside, slammed his head against the wall a number of times. He died. Worse yet, you can see from the, the autopsy photos just how horrible his face is completely smashed by this. But they claim that he died from swallowing marijuana in an attempt to stash the evidence. Now, this is where it all started, even before Tunisia, I think. The, the groundwork was being laid because you saw protests then that were not just activists and Islamists, which were usually the people who would, would show up for these things. You saw housewives who were not especially political coming out and protesting. Enough was enough. The police are treating us like, like dirt. They're just beating us whenever they want. The police had gotten to the point where they thought they could do anything they wanted with impunity because they could. It got so bad that Hosni Mubarak himself, I think, started to feel a little worried and uh, had, he was originally going to try to let those police off the hook. He had to kind of put them on trial after this, simply try to, to reduce tensions. At this point, Mohammed al-Baradai came back to uh, lead marches for the first time in a while. It seemed like something could happen, but I thought I was expecting limited reform, so I wasn't mm-hmm. expecting what we saw. Tunisia changed everything, and the great bravery of the Egyptian populace changed everything. I could not believe how, how steadfast they were in the face of first rubber bullets and tear gas and then live ammunition. Mm-hmm. with over 800 eventually killed. So what, this was a very good moment for Badiou, I would have to say. This was, it was very event-like, what yeah. happened in Egypt. I'm also fascinated by the way the, the battlefield moves around the city. Um, mm-hmm. There are different locations where different things seem to happen. Tahrir, of course, was the first. And interestingly enough, the properties of Tahrir are not very favorable for a, for a uh, large protest because it's so hard to defend. No uh, military commander would ever choose that spot to defend because it has about 10 to 12 entrances. These these thugs kept coming in from different places. They had to protect each and every entrance, which was very hard to do. The fact that they did so is miraculous. Uh, And then it's it's moved around. The next place uh, the violence occurred was the Maspero, the television station area along the Nile in, uh, I guess that was September, or was it early October? when the, uh, the Coptic marchers were uh, basically massacred by the army, which claimed that it had done no such thing. They claimed they were attacked first. And even more cynically, they went on the television and said, Egyptians, please come out and defend your armed forces from the marauding Copts, which was mm-hmm. the most horribly cynical thing. to Come out and defend us when the people were massacring. Absolutely horrible. That was the moment when I lost all confidence in the army. I was always more suspicious of them than some people were because of the way they let the thugs in with the camels and the horses. But the, um, the Maspero incident really alarms me. And also the fact that these are all Mubarak's friends. They simply threw Mubarak under the bus. Some people don't even think they're doing that. Some people think he's not even really being in prison, that he might yeah. be calling the shots. I don't know about that, but these are certainly his friends and his colleagues. And then it moved to um, Mohammed Mahmoud Street, a street that I know as well as the street I grew up on, because it's alongside the old American University in Cairo campus. And to see that turn into a shooting gallery was a shock. And that's my, my one decision to go into the heart of the danger was during that period in November because I really wanted to see the way a geographic location I knew very well myself was being transformed into a battlefield. Mm-hmm. And I found a sneaky back way to get almost all the way up there. At that point, I was tear gassed and I left. It was probably not a prudent thing to do, but it was an experience I needed to have. And it was amazing to see these ambulances coming out with wounded and dying people on the back. It was like a scene from Dante's Inferno. They're all wearing World War I gas masks, mm-hmm. these motorcycle ambulance drivers. So uh, those are some of the things that, that strike me as being worthy of thoughts. I'm not saying I have a, a political philosophy to share with them, but these mm-hmm. are the sorts of things. I'm looking for surprises a lot when I'm looking at what happens in a situation that I wasn't expecting to happen 
or that affects me deeply in a situation. When you do that, I think you're on the path towards the truth. Mm-hmm. That's, so that's what I was looking for. You asked, uh, you asked about political uh, things in general that influence me, because there's one other besides Egypt that I should mention, which is that I've been a vegetarian since the age of seven. Mm-hmm. I've always been very sensitive to the suffering of animals, mm-hmm. and I would consider this a political issue. I wouldn't say that I've been an animal rights activist. Uh, maybe I would do that at some point. In fact, if I were going to get into politics, that would probably be my first step. Because mm-hmm. I think you have to start with where you are. You have to start with what you feel most genuinely about. And I feel genuinely about uh, preventing the industrialized slaughter of cows and pigs. Uh, and this might be a place that I start mm-hmm. if, if I ever feel like I have something to offer in that zone. Rather than starting out with some mm-hmm. sweeping ideology about overthrowing neoliberalism yeah. or something like this. So I'm going I'm to try... I'm going to try and sort of diagnose or extrapolate from your comments and you tell me if this is if this is complete nonsense okay. right um, I doubt it will be okay so all right there's a there's a lot of ways one could talk about the Egyptian revolution right yes so a certain Marxist or vulgar Marxist perspective would say okay what you're describing is internal contradictions mm-hmm. that somehow at a certain and, and it's, it's actually it's a powerful explanation that, that at a certain moment the internal contradictions became too much and then alternately if you don't want to frame it in a sort of simple um, uh, class conflict you could bring in someone like Ernesto Leclerc who has this notion of a floating signifier that everyone comes to identify with mm-hmm. um, and this blogger becomes it and I'm not proposing these but I'm simply saying different ways of mapping what's happening here uh, Bruno Latour would have, could have a notion of for example, Tahrir Square as either a thing or a parliament around which gatherings take place. Um, but it seems like the way you describe it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and even more so when you move into animals. I mean, you're talking about particular people, particular events. Um, and for example, when you talk about Tahrir Square, you talk about entrances and exits. Mm-hmm. And so, and even more when you talk about for example, you don't talk about animal rights in terms of rights. You start by talking about in terms of animals, right? And so I wonder if there is a kind of implicit, say, object-oriented ethic in the way that you're describing this, just in what seems salient to you and how you talk about it. Or is this simply, or, you know, again, could it be, as you said earlier, actually it's not necessarily the task of philosophy to organize everything from the beginning, these are things that may or may not converge. Right. In which case, uh, maybe these are parallels. Maybe they're coincidences. I mean, is there? Could you? Could one say that the way you discuss it has an object-oriented implication? Or very or interesting. Not? Very interesting. First, let me say something else that some people won't like, which is that all the orthodox Marxist analyses I've seen of the. Egyptian revolution have been self-serving, ideological, and false. Mm-hmm. They say things like it was a working class revolution. Not really. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the working class played a role. Those strikes at the very end of the revolution with the coup de grace from Barak, there's no question. When that happened, I knew it was finished. Mm-hmm. But, and I'm not saying the protesters were rich. Obviously, they weren't. The, the rich people are, have no stake in, not all of them at least, in, mm-hmm. in protesting in Tahrir. What I saw in Tahrir, which the Marxists don't want to admit, is that it was a lot of these Facebook kids, these westernized Facebook kids that played a big role. It was also Islamists mm-hmm. and maybe some of the impoverished. But we did not see a revolution driven by mass worker movements, as far as I can, anything I saw. That's simply a self-serving Marxist ideology trying to read everything in its own terms. This is why the main reason I'm not a Marxist. 
several reasons, but um, um, one of them is that I have too many East European friends who suffered too much under it. And I know that Marxists like to make fun of that argument, but it's a legitimate argument. Mm-hmm. Um, you try to live under that system. Um, Marxism too easily becomes an ideology. It too easily reduces everything that it doesn't like out of the picture. You know, mm-hmm. Everything must be explained in economic terms. Um, everything must be explained in terms of the class conflict. This is not true. These are part of the picture. Capital is part of the picture. But there's also things involved like sand and like streets. And um, notice that Delanda has taken a kind of non-Marxist turn in his leftism. Mm-hmm. He's getting this from Brodel. And this is precisely the reason. It's because he doesn't think that Marx takes enough account of the material peculiarities in each situation. I know Levi Bryant disagrees with that. Levi Bryant has an object-oriented reading of Marx, and maybe we'll see him publish on that. I'd look forward to seeing what he has to say about this. But Delanda has been seeming more hostile to Marxism lately, mm-hmm. although still very strongly of the left, because precisely because of what it excludes from the analyses. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, you asked if there's a built-in ethics to object-oriented philosophy. Right, you know, to put it, to, 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 again, to make, it, to make it really concrete, is, is, is it would it be fair to say that the way you analyze the situation, mm-hmm. that, you know, in other words, you're not talking about abstract social forces and things like that. Yeah. You're interested in a blogger. You're interested in the square. You're interested in entrances. And then later on, you're interested in animals, right? Yes. Is that, is that a kind of implicit, um, object-oriented set of concerns? You're or, right. In a way, it is. It's, there's a lot of Latour influence there. It's not, I don't want to look at systems. No. I don't want to look at structural forces. I want to look at the role of individual entities. Mm-hmm. It's like Whitehead and Latour. I think ultimately everything has to be explained by individual entities. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of, of what you said about animals made me think that there may be an implicit ethics of letting things be in object-oriented philosophy, which you know, there are limits. There are times when you need to destroy things. But uh, the default assumption should be that you let a thing be what it is. You don't try to reduce it to something else by means of a theory, by means of overconnecting it to other things. You're trying to bring out the singularity of individual things. Um, it's the same reason you don't mix 10 different kinds of wine together in one glass. What would be the point of that? You're trying to get the individual flavor of each kind of wine in its ideal setting. And why, the reason why you also don't necessarily want to mix all of your friends together at once. This is why Facebook isn't necessarily a good idea. Why would you want to gather everybody you know in a single place mm-hmm. where any one of them could say something embarrassing at a given moment? I've had to boot a few friends from my friends list for this reason. <laughs> They're saying things that are totally inappropriate for my other friends. Yeah. So you don't always want to combine things. You don't always want to relate things. Sometimes it's best to have different parts of mm-hmm. your life or of a situation. But don't intermix. Mm-hmm. Well, I think uh, I think it's a great place to finish. Um, thank you for coming and being so uh, gracious and uh, charming and open. Thank you very much. What your listeners will not be able to hear is that it's freezing cold outside in Berlin today. It's one of the coldest days I've experienced in several mm-hmm. years. So it's nice to be in this warm little studio office with a sunny day outside. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was it was it was a pleasure to have you here with us, and uh, thank you for stopping by. Thanks very much for the invitation. Mm-hmm.